Hey everyone, Lost Notes producers here. I am Nick. And I'm Mike. And we are back with one final reissue episode before Lost Notes returns with new stories for Volume 2 in April. But today, we want to bring you a story from inside the house. This is from KCRW's Unfictional. Yes, and that's because a brand new season of Unfictional begins today as we put this episode out. That is KCRB's like original storytelling and documentary show from the masterful Bob Carlson. Go over to the Unfictional feed now, subscribe, you'll get a story that actually involves a music angle. It's the guy who designed all the stage guitars for Kiss, and that is actually just the start of the story. I bet that story has more platform boots than any story we've ever done before or since. <laughs> uh, what we're about to play for you here is a piece called Nature Boy. And if that title sounds at all familiar, you may know the song it's named after. It was recorded first by Nat King Cole in 1948, but it was picked up on as a pop standard by many, many artists subsequently, including Frank Sinatra, Marvin Gaye, David Bowie, and most recently, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. I have not heard that one. Yes. This story originally ran on Unfictional back in 2014, and it was made by the independent producer Eric Malinsky. Hey, Eric. And yes, there's a lot more to this song than you think. It was written by maybe one of the prototypical hippies far before that movement became a thing. But we'll let Eric tell you the story about him. So here it is, Nature Boy. It's 1987. Joe Remersa is working at the Salty Dog Recording Studios in Los Angeles. An old man shows up with long white hair and a beard. He's wearing robes. And he says he wants to hire Joe as a sound engineer. He introduced himself to me. He says, my name's Eden Abez, but you can call me Abby. And you can pronounce it like, well, Abby. At first, Joe thought this was just another homeless old hippie. And he's not totally wrong about that. But there's something different about this guy. Now, Joe doesn't come cheap. Major artists like Bruce Springsteen have used his studio. But Abby says he can pay for it because he wrote a hit song in the 1940s. And he's still reaping royalties from it. You know, he said, uh, I wrote a famous song. It was a favorite song of three presidents. At the time, he had to, you know, sing the song for me because I didn't, I didn't remember the song. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. That, of course, is Nat King Cole, not Eden Abes. A lot of artists have covered Nature Boy, from Frank Sinatra to Cher. But now Eden Abes wants to rewrite his lyrics. Actually, uh, working with him, I actually worked on about three or four different versions of Nature Boy with the corrected lyric, which he was very keen on letting the world know about. The phrase, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and be loved in return. He says, Joe, uh, there's the rewrite for that. He says, you know, the greatest thing you ever learn is to love and be loved. Just to love and be loved because there's no deal in love. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love. And be loved in return. Nature Boy was Abby's life story, or at least his life in 1948. Since then, he's learned a lot about love and loss. And now, 
he wants to record a concept album. Joe says, if you can pay for the studio, let's do it. So Abi retreats back to the desert, where he lives in a van. He works on these new songs for weeks, even months. He wouldn't even give me his phone number. Uh, he would just basically come to town and call me, and if I was available, we could get together. Or sometimes he'd leave these long messages on my phone machine. You know, so, oh, Joe, I wish you were there. Remember, Joe, you're not an old man like I am. You're young, and you're strong, and you're beautiful, and you're very gifted in talent, and you know how to work the computer, and you're a great engineer. This is a tape that Joe posted to YouTube. He added his own music as a tribute. I wish we could talk a little, but I know you're out, but anyway... For a man who wants to rewrite a classic song so he can declare to the world that he doesn't need to be loved, Abby sounds pretty lonely. He doesn't want to hang up the phone. As they kept working together, Joe and Abby became good friends. We were in the studio doing session, and I was actually going through some pretty bad times. I was going through a divorce, and I was having some problems with money and other stuff. But, you know, Abby knew I was upset and he brought in this little globe into the, the session and he says Joe point out where you are on this globe for me and this globe is about the size of a golf ball and so I take a pencil and I point you know towards California there and then he said and how big are your problems Brian Chittister spent years researching a biography on Eden Abbas he says Joe's friendship with Abby was not that unusual. Abby had been a spiritual father figure to a number of young men at that time. One of the common things that I hear is, at the worst time of my life, when I just was like so down, I would walk into a hardware store and there would be Eden. Or at the worst time of my life, I would go to this coffee shop and next thing I know, Eden would show up and he'd have nothing but like a kind and encouraging word. People go looking for Jesus. I tell them, well, Jesus found me. Because <laughs> I, I kind of look at Abby as if he was like a, the American Jesus, you know. But Abby didn't see himself as the American Jesus. The album they were working on in the companion book was called Scriptures of the Golden Age. It was about worshiping nature instead of God. He thought that its central message of there being no God and, and, and that we have everything we need within nature to coexist peacefully was something that Eden thought he would get killed over. When you talk against any religion, whether the Muslim or Christianity, you have a lot of people that get very upset and they come after you. And Abby didn't want any part of that stuff. And suddenly their work and their friendship was over. Eden Abes was killed in a car crash, driving the van that he lived in. Joe was supposed to release Scriptures of the Golden Age after Abby had died, but the rights belonged to a lawyer in Palm Springs named David Jenawayak. This lawyer was responsible for getting all those royalty checks from Nature Boy to Eden Abes, and Brian Chittister thinks the lawyer may have been appalled that his client was blowing all that money on the Salty Dog Studios. I'm sure it seemed preposterous for a man of his age to be spending all of that money at these expensive studios with these union 
engineers and, and session musicians for something that probably amounted in David Janowiak's mind to delusions of grandeur. The music that Avi recorded with Joe was placed on legal lockdown. I mean, we can't even play a clip of it right now. So I'm, I'm sitting here with 40 years of a man's work just kind of wrapped up in uh, limbo. The burden of, of being responsible for this stuff has, re- has really eaten away at me for years. I'm, I, you know, when I think of Eden, I think of that old Native American story of, of the man who, as he walked in the sand, took his hair behind him and brushed away the footprints so that the only footprints were the ones he was standing in. And I think, in a way, Eden Abes lived 87 years on this earth and left very little in the way of footprints on the indigenous conditions. And what little he did leave us has a profound magic to it. The legacy of Eden Abes is actually much bigger than his music. You see, he wasn't the only nature boy. He was part of a small but very influential movement back in the 1930s and 40s. And when you think about Southern California today, with its yoga studios, organic health food stores, environmental conservation groups, that whole culture can be traced back to Eden Abes and his friends, the Nature Boys. You're listening to Nature Boy, a three-part suite from Unfictional on KCRW. Reporter Eric Malinsky is looking at the life of Eden Nabez, a songwriter mainly known for having this one big hit, but much less known is the major impact he had on California culture. Here's Eric Malinsky with part two of the story, The Utropian. On KCRW, it's unfictional. Let's go back, way, way back to the early 1900s. Los Angeles is not even a city yet. It's a sketch on top of a Garden of Eden that supposedly cures ills and ailments. A few East Coast transplants are trickling in, trying to recreate Boston or Manhattan on the West Coast. But Southern California is also attracting German immigrants with a deep appreciation of nature. This kind of terrain just wasn't possible anywhere in in Germany. I mean, nobody had ever seen an environment like that with native palm trees and just granite rocks and cactus all over the place, very few flies, water flowing down out of the mountains. Just an idyllic setting, wonderful place to live. Gordon Kennedy is an organic farmer in Bombay Beach, California. He spent years researching these German immigrants for a book called Children of the Sun. They were part of a counterculture that rebelled against industrialization in Europe and celebrated the pagan roots of German culture. There were also nudists and vegetarians. I've seen pictures of them in Los Angeles around 1910. They look like characters from a Gustav Klimt painting, reveling in the California sun. Two of the most influential Germans of this time were John and Vera Richter. In 1917, they opened a series of health food stores and restaurants in Los Angeles called the Eutropian, which means good nutrition in Greek. The Eutropians were kind of like a focal point for people that were into natural foods and raw vegan diets and stuff like that. By the 1930s, 
the Richters had amassed a small group of disciples called the Nature Boys. Well, a lot of them look very pious, you know. They, they look like they belong to some kind of religious sect almost, you know. They, they tended to let their facial hair grow. Their eyes were usually wide open and they were not into any kind of a heavy diet. They, you could see they'd been living on light foods and doing a lot of walking and hiking and breathing and living in the mountains, sleeping outdoors, all of them well tanned. So all of them that I've ever seen and known had a lot of energy and had a lot of determination to live this kind of a life. The Nature Boys worked on local farms. They were cooks and dishwashers at the Eutropian. They even slept in the Richter's backyard. Originally, Eden Abes wasn't part of this group. He was a drifter that showed up around 1942. The first Nature Boy that he met was Robert Bootsen, who went by the nickname Gypsy Boots. Gypsy Boots told me he met Eden on the beach in Venice, and as soon as they saw each other, they recognized, you know, say, hey, yeah, we got a lot in common already. And so they started traveling together and they lived together quite a bit. It's like, um, you don't know there's somebody else there just like you until you meet them. Eden was also friendly with an Indian immigrant named Paramahanasa Yogananda. This is the man who was credited with bringing yoga to the United States. That's how Abi got his nickname, the Yogi. You can always see pictures of him in a lotus or doing postures and doing sessions and talking about yoga and things like that. And he was probably more into it than any of them were. Yoga, meditation, organic foods, nature conservation, growing their hair out, all in the 40s. And these guys were ridiculously ahead of their time. But that can be a blessing and a curse. They were still young guys, hoping to meet young ladies. If you had long hair and a beard in the 40s or the 50s, people thought you were crazy or weird. You know, and so people would shun somebody that looked like that. And if you came home with some girl or whatever, you went to see her parents, you know, they obviously wouldn't like you if you looked like that. They would think you were some kind of a, a dropout or a bump. Eden did eventually get married. His wife, Anna, was a free spirit like him. Her parents were mortified by her choice of a husband. You'd think when the counterculture finally took off in the 60s, Eden would be thrilled. Maybe he'd be hailed as a forefather. But by this point, he's a middle-aged man. He's in his 50s, trying to support a family. There was um, just a wild, crazy people on drugs in the 60s, and there was a lot of biker-type people in the 60s, and there was um, speed freaks in the 60s. There were people that were very divorced from nature that had, had nothing to do at all with the natural world. Remember, the Nature Boys didn't do drugs. They were into physical fitness, even hard labor. In the 60s, Gypsy Boots used to complain about kids these days. He said that they even trashed up the canyons in the mountains where he used to live, up in, in Tokwitz Canyon. He said, yeah, the hippies trashed that all up. And he was talking about them like the hippies, like, like I'm not one of them. Meanwhile, Eden Abes was going through his own turmoil. His wife Anna died of cancer, leaving him alone to take care of their teenage son, Zoma. And apparently Zoma was really torn up at his mother's death and got in with the wrong element um, and became addicted to crystal meth. And Zoma was murdered uh, in 1969. And for most of the 1970s and the first half of the 1980s, he spends his time back out in nature looking for answers. The answer he came up with was that being loved was another luxury he had to shed. That's why he showed up at Joe Ramirez's studio in 1987, saying that he wanted to rewrite his autobiographical song, Nature Boy. Whenever he'd talk about Anna, he'd, a tear would come to his eye or Zoma. 
you know, but then he'd, he'd talk about nature or he'd recite one of his poems and we'd be back on track again. I lived in Southern California for a decade. I mean, I didn't know about the Nature Boys at that time, but sometimes I'd be hanging out on Hermosa Beach or camping at Joshua Tree. And I'd think how tempting it would be to just dish the rat race and all the responsibilities of building a career and just live simply in this astounding landscape. But I'm not sure if the Nature Boys were happier than the rest of us. But we can still learn a lot from the Nature Boys. In fact, their message may be timelier than ever. I'm Bob Carlson, and you're listening to an episode called Nature Boy, a three-part suite. And this last part is called A Strange Enchanted Boy. Reporter Eric Malinsky looks at the music career of Eden Abes and how the song Nature Boy became a national sensation. It's unfictional. I want to start over again, this time back east. He was born George Alexander Aberle in 1908. Um, and he was born in the Brownsville district of Brooklyn, which was about 99.9% Jewish at the time. Again, that's Brian Chittister, who's researching a biography on Eden Abes. At the age of nine, in uh, 1917, the family who had had nine kids gave up four of them. Eden's two older brothers, just above him, and he and his twin sister, Editha, were um, sent to the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. And uh, about a year later, they were sent on what's now known as the orphan trains out into the Midwest, where um, he was taken up by George and Sadie McGrew, who were a Protestant family that owned a tea shop in uh, Chanute, Kansas. People in Chanute that knew his family said that the parents were abusive, the adopted parents were abusive. You know, they were scarred enough for Editha and Eden or George to leave as quickly as they could. I don't think you can underestimate the psychological impact all that rejection and abuse had on George Oberle, AKA George McGrew. He started hopping freight trains when he was 13. We don't know when he changed his name to Eden Abes, all lowercase letters. He crisscrossed the country seven times over a period of 20 years before he finally settled in Southern California. But he showed up with something that none of the other nature boys had, a gift for songwriting. In 1948, Eden walked up to the National Theater in downtown Los Angeles, and he handed sheet music to Nat King Cole's valet. He said the song was his own personal story. Amazingly, this guy doesn't throw it out. He gives it to Nat King Cole, who tries it out on a piano and really likes it. The song has kind of a haunting Yiddish quality to it. But King Cole's confused why the songwriter didn't leave any contact information. He sent his people all over town looking for this guy. They finally find Eden Abes sleeping under the Hollywood sign. You know, one of the reasons that we know that he liked to to go up there was because on Mount Lee, the wind really whips through the Los Angeles air in kind of a magical way, and Eden in carving wooden flutes all the time, he would like to hold it up to the wind and let, you know, nature play its own song. He thought that that was, you know, somehow more uh, romantic and authentic than anything that he could play coming out of his lungs. It was such a crazy story. Nat King Cole's publicist got in touch with Life magazine, and the origin of Nature Boy became a show business legend. 
that's sort of like the 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 Eden Abes mythology that that comes around, and and I'm not sure that some of that wasn't purposeful on Eden's part. You know, I mean, he liked to see himself as a prophet, and you could almost imagine him with his hands up saying. Lo and behold, Nat King Cole shall sing this new song of peace and love throughout the land. But in actuality, he'd spread himself pretty thin, promising a wide variety of popular artists a piece of the royalties were they to record it. As Eden was handing out sheet music to every major singer in Los Angeles, the Studio Musicians Union was about to go on strike. Little known fact, Frank Sinatra and Sarah Vaughan released their own versions of Nature Boy before Nat King Cole but they had to record them a cappella because the studio musicians had walked out. And then one day, a magic day he passed my way. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings... Nat King Cole recorded Nature Boy with an orchestra right before the union went on strike. The strike was not over when, when Capitol Records decided to put Nat King Cole's Nature Boy out in Mar- on March 15, 1948. Um, they'd held on to it long enough, and they didn't have any new coal material. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And uh, did you know King Cole? No, I have never yet met the man who has played such an important part in my life. Well, you're going to meet him now. King Cole has flown in from Chicago especially to appear on We the People and to meet you. Here he is, Nat King Cole. Nature Boy, meet Nat Cole. Hello, Eden. Hello, Nat. It's great to see you. That goes for me, too, Eden. You know, Nature Boy was sort of the perfect storm. America and, and, and the world had actually, you know, were only three years out from World War II and uh, the atomic bomb. We were in the midst of, of a newfound Cold World paranoia. And here was a guy amidst all of this death and destruction who was advocating peace. And he looked like Jesus Christ. And he had this fantastic story. Uh, Abby, uh, what are you going to do with the money that you're going to make from your songs? You're not used to having so much money, are you? All the money in the world will not change my way of life because all the money in the world could not give me the things I already have. Anna and I have learned that nature and a simple life will bring you peace and happiness. We sleep on the ground in sleeping bags in the California mountains and deserts. Well, where are you staying here in New York? In the best hotel in the city, Central Park. Well. When it came time for, you know, Life and Time and Newsweek to interview him, instead of reciting lyrics to something that was equally beautiful, he's quoted as as saying, like, wait till you hear this next song I got. It's called Real Gone Yogi. There don't seem to be any recordings of Real Gone Yogi. But from what Brian has read, he's not impressed. You can only imagine the journalist going, this is what he wants to follow up Nature Boy with? Is this campy number... Eden writes a couple of hits like Lonely Island for Sam Cooke. I live on a lonely island in the heart of a city. I live on a lonely island. There isn't any hope for me. I tell you, my heart is... He also writes a couple of duds like this 
weird satire of Nikita Khrushchev called Mr. K. It was for John Bean, who used to make novelty records. Yeah, he's wandered very far from Nature Boy. Eden may have been a truly unique human being, a strange enchanted boy, but his career followed the path of a lot of one-hit wonders in the music industry. He did have a passion project, though. It was an album of poetry set to music called Eden's Island, which he finally released in 1960. Eden had really high hopes for this record, but... Eden's Island was a tremendous flop. It sold 500 copies. I saw the one who lives while all things die. And I was swallowed by the sea and lost in the deep and washed up on the shore. He lived a lifestyle that was filled with magic ideas. And yet the stigma that Eden felt from the very beginning of being outside He was an island for many years. But once again, Eden Abes turned out to be ahead of his time. In the mid-90s after he died, lounge music and Exotica came back in a big way. And uh, in 1998, Delphi reissued Eden's Island. And immediately that post-punk and post-alternative generation reaction to Eden's Island was unanimously favorable. In the 90s, political progressives rediscovered Eden as well. Remember Gordon Kennedy, the organic farmer who wrote a book about the Nature Boys? He got to know them because they used to work on his farm. The Nature Boys used to come out here when the winter was getting colder, like in January and stuff. Even as old men, the Nature Boys always earned their keep, and the farmers really liked them. When they were too old to work, Gordon Kennedy had trouble finding help. You know, it wasn't popular in a lot of part of the 80s. I was an organic farmer. I never had anybody to work on my farm for the whole decade. And by the end of the 90s, I was turning people away, and I still am. Now there's all kinds of young people that want to work on farms and things. But there's something different about today's version of the Nature Boys and girls. The ones I try to avoid the hardest are the ones that are, like, on these road trips blogging, and they're addicted to texting and all of the, uh, the little devices. They're the ones that have the hardest time breaking out. I can definitely relate. That's the Nature Boy challenge I need to work on, appreciating the world without posting a picture or a comment about it. As for Eden Abes, he can be a little hard to relate to. I mean, the man was a living legend. It's easy to paint Eden's life in heroic overtones, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, he was just a guy. But that's what I find most inspiring about him. We all struggle to find our place in the world, there are moments when we feel like we're really having an impact. Then there are moments when we feel kind of lost. Every time Eden got stuck on Eden's Island, he always found his way back. And as he would say, the greatest thing you can ever learn is to give love without asking for it in return. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love That was Nature Boy, a three-part suite, and it was produced by Eric Malinsky. 
It was edited and mixed by Bob Carlson. This piece originally appeared on KCRLB's Unfictional in 2014. If you're just finding us, you can rewind back to the first season of Lost Notes. It's available wherever you found this one or kcrw.com slash lostnotes. And be sure to add us to your podcast app of choice. We'll be back in a flash with Volume 2. Thanks for listening.